Welcome to the Wanting It More podcast. I am your host, Jana Denton-Howes, and it's an absolute delight to have you here. I'm a marriage and intimacy educator, as well as a creator of the Wanting It More program, which has helped thousands of women who are married to men want and enjoy it more in the bedroom. You know, having low desire was something that I personally struggled with for years in my marriage, so I absolutely get it all. You are not alone. Just a heads up, I use all the words in this podcast, so if you've got little ears around or you're in public setting, you may want to pop in some earbuds. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Wanting It More podcast. Today we have a really special experience. I read the book uh, Sex God in the Conservative Church about a year and a half or two years ago. It was recommended to me by someone who was working on my team and I just uh, ate it up. I just, you know, cover to cover. Uh, was so grateful that somebody was saying these words. And we're going to get into all that. I'm so excited. I just want to get going. I need to read the bio and all that formal stuff. Um, but I'm I'm just really excited about this episode. So just right off the bat, just so you know, if this episode is for you, uh, we're going to be talking about healing from from religious sexual shame. We're going to be using the G word, God, universe, source, whatever you want to call it. We're going to be talking about sexuality and spirituality and how those mix together. So if you feel like this is the right episode for you, keep on listening. All right, let's do the formal stuff. Hopefully I can pronounce your name right. Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. Did I get that right? Okay. So Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers is a licensed sex and gender feminist psychotherapist, such a cool title, best-selling author and researcher whose expertise spans sex therapy, spiritual intimacy, parenting, medicine, and social justice, right up my alley, known for exposing the impact of patriarchy and sexual shame on our ability to securely attach to our partners and instruct our children to attach to theirs, Dr. Sellers' book, Sex God and the Conservative Church Erasing Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy has had a global impact. Her latest book, Shameless Parenting, I need to read this book, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free Confident Kids and Heal Your Shame Too, was a new release bestseller in eight categories. Congratulations. In 2015, Dr. Sellers left her academic position of 28 years to found the Northwest Institute on Intimacy, a postgraduate institute to train psychotherapists, educators, clergy, and physicians in sexual health and understanding their sexual biases. Thank goodness, because there's not enough training for that. Welcome, Dr. Tina, to the Wanting and More podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jan. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. Oh my gosh, what a what a joy. Okay, so... Um, let's talk about God and sex. I just want to get right into it. And my first question, I I thought it was kind of funny because my question was, was, what do you truly think God thinks about sex? And then I had to pause and think, does God think? (laughs) (laughs) So right off the bat, we're doing our best, but what, what are your thoughts about God and sex? Well, I don't pretend to understand, um, the intricacies of the heart of a creator or source or the divine at all. Um, But I do believe some things are intentional about the human species. And I will say that hanging out with kids um, is one of the places you can learn a lot about who we are before we get all 
covered with cultural and social stuff, muck, right? And um, and kids love play, they love connection, they love pleasure, they love exploration, they love learning, right? And and our sexuality is a part of that. And in fact, we put all these adult terms on on sexuality, but you know, kids find their hands, understand that their hands are not a weapon to scratch them about 10 months old and somewhere around a year, they're getting their diapers changed or they're in the bathtub and they discover their genitals. And they're like, wow, great part of my body, you know? And if they have a parent that knows that's just another part of the body and says, oh yeah, that's your penis or that's your clitoris, it's part of your vulva. There are so many nerve endings. It's a fabulous part of your body. We take care of it like we take care of the other parts. You know, just explains, you know, like these are eyes and ears and nose and, you know, whatever. Explains it. Then the kid just like integrates that knowledge and learning into their life. And that part of their body becomes a place of comfort for most kids or for many kids, right? And then around the age of four, they're finally able to understand, oh, I should go to my bedroom if I want to do this, or oh, I should go to the bathroom if I want to. That's what we do in our culture, right? Um, And so they learn that. Um, And then at five or six, they're playing doctor and they're like, I know my body. What's your body like? You know, this is all exploration and learning and discovery and comfort and pleasure. So at the root of it all, I believe that whatever being or beings created us, right? That pleasure was a part of things and that pleasure heals. Pleasure is like play. Pleasure restores. Pleasure lets us have leisure. It lets us relax. We're meant to enjoy the fact that we were given five senses that give us so much data and beauty and wonder about our world and to live into that fully. And we know that because we watch children do it. And then we learn to talk ourselves out of it. We learn to pathologize it later in life, as opposed to seeing it for the healing virtue that it is, the restful, leisure, playful virtue that it is. So no matter how we like to do our sensuality, our sexuality in our life, and believe me, there's a wide range of how people want to do that. That desire for connection and pleasure is pretty hardwired into us, I believe. You know, I think the reason that little itty bitties that are just born root toward the breast is not because the milk is there. It's not there yet. It is connection and pleasure. It's the smell. It's the feel, right? It's that familiar. I want comfort. I want pleasure. And they're drawn to it. We know if we don't give toddlers enough holding, right? And safety in touch that they're going to suffer neurological damage, right? Walk down the halls of an Alzheimer's unit and you'll have people who don't have memory, but they are still seeking connection and pleasure. It's one of the more challenging things I think for caregivers to manage and adult children to manage about their aging parents. But it's still, I think, a lovely example of who we are at our core. So I don't pretend to understand the wider intricacies, but I look at what is consistent and I say, there's something here for us as adults to look at and to cherish and protect and enjoy while we're in these bodies. 
You know, I look at your radiant face and your smile <laughs> and your beautiful words, which make so much sense. And I can hear, you know, Jana, maybe seven, eight, ten years ago, or the women that I serve, thinking, okay, that feels really good, and that makes a lot of sense, and what do I do with this muck, this ick that I'm feeling inside that says, bad, bad, mm. bad, 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 don't look, don't touch, don't do that, well, maybe make babies, but even when you do that, make sure it's missionary position, just penis in the vagina, just make sure that the cum get, gets quick, well, let's call it ejaculate or sperm, even more technical, and then that's safe. No hands, no mouth, no, no, you know, don't deviate from the structure. And then that is what we're supposed to do. How do we, how, yeah, how do we, or how have you gotten to this place where, where you're getting to the, the basics, the fundamentals of what it means to be human? Yeah. You know, Jana, I get there relatively easily because I did not grow up in a body shaming or sex shaming home. Oh, yeah. I grew up in a Swedish immigrant home. My grandparents were immigrants to the United States. They had multiple generations of people. So it's epigenetic in my family for people to explain bodies as you go, to answer questions, to lovingly tease each other. My grandmother wore a shorty nighty and a bikini her entire life and died at 92. Bodies were just what you had. And bodies were good no matter what, unless they were in like chronic pain or something, you know, in which case they were hard to live in, but bodies were just seen as good. And, and everybody in my environment, and I mean that very literally in my family environment, because I, my, I had four great aunts and grandparents that lived on a property together. And, and so literally I was surrounded by people who shared the same way of being around bodies and sexuality. So I have in my memory, countless conversations with aunts, with uncles, with great aunts, with grandparents, with parents, you know, and believe me, my family was not perfect. There are plenty of skeletons in that closet if you open it. But this one area was a profound gift to me because I'm a Swede. I'm a good, almost probably 30 pounds overweight or, you know, on American standards or whatever. But this is my body. This is the body of my people. We look like me, <laughs> you know, we're hardy, we're hardy folk. And, um, and, and so I, while I still got all the messages from culture, my family message was strong enough that I could question it and I could question it early. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and so I'd be like, yeah, well, this is the way my body is. I'm strong, you know, and I'm sturdy and I am never going to be thin because that's not how my body wants to live. It's just not, but I'm grateful that I'm as healthy as I am. And so because I never got that, when I got, it got that kind of sexual shame and body shame, when I got exposed to it in students and clients around the year 2000. And, and I just want to say that at the onset that Prior to abstinence-only education getting rolled out in the early 80s, True Love Weights movement starting in the early 90s, prior to that, we actually, so in the 70s, like, so when I was an adolescent, 
we had, even though we had the Jesus movement, you know, which is when Christian contemporary music started and you went to concerts on Saturday, every Saturday, and there was always an altar call, but, oh, it was even better if you were just getting off drugs because you were going to be so loved up. Like, oh, baby, we got you. We got, you know, Jesus, we got you. Jesus loves you. Oh, don't worry. There was not this legalism. There was not this judgment. There was an understanding in it. You can go back and look at the books from this time, the popular novels from this time. It was, and the music, actually, there's just even the music from the 70s. You can see love the one you're with, right? It was very much this loving culture. And then in 1980, everything's changed sociopolitically. And they chose abortion to be the issue for the Christians to represent. It wasn't prior to that. Um, the Southern Baptist Church supported Roe v. Wade in 1974, all the way up through 1979, right? There was this quick sociopolitical turn to the right. And we then added, not just don't have sex till you get married, but if you do, make sure that it's a loving person. <laughs> I mean, that was sort of the 70s, right? Um, it was don't have sex before marriage. Don't think about sex don't want it. And if you do, not only will you ruin your chance of having a reasonable relationship later in life, you will ruin your relationship with God in eternity. And you are being monitored by this God, right? And this is, this is what rolled out. And so I began seeing it in my students and clients around the year 2000, because they were about 15 in the early nineties. Right. Yeah. And and I, I was actually baffled. I'm like, what am I seeing? Like, I don't quite understand this degree of body hate, body shame, sense of being perverted, sense of really not understanding normal development, normal sexual development. Like, because I was reading, I was teaching um, the graduate levels human sexuality course, which is required for licensure for marriage and family therapists. And I had my students write their sexual autobiography. And a lot of times when people hear this, they're like, no way. I can't imagine ever doing that. But if you're going to be a therapist, you need to know what your stories are. You need to know where you begin and end yeah. and your clients, right? Begin and end. And, and given that we were growing up in a place where we now not only did not have the sex education we had had from the mid forties through the seventies, that was gone. What we had was abstinence education and that was 80% medically inaccurate. Right. And mm -hmm. so my students really didn't know. And I thought you can't afford, given the little that we teach you on sexuality and sexual health in this program, one class, one 10 week class, we cannot afford for you to go out into the world and serve people, including their sexuality and not know your story. And so I gave them like 80 questions. And I said, I don't want you to answer them one by one. I want you to see the arc that I'm asking. And I want you to write your story so that you can see the legacy from what you've come and ask yourself whether this is the legacy you want to continue. And if not, what do you want and why? Right. And so these papers were anywhere from 20 to 30 pages long. And there was this, this noticeable shift around the year 2000, because I started teaching in the early nineties. And I, I was, I, I was so confused. I remember going into my chair's office, the chair of my department and crying and saying, these are breaking my heart. Like, I don't understand what happened to these kids. Their symptoms look like somebody that's experienced sexual assault as a child, but that's what, not what they're describing. 
and they're not describing enough for me to understand why they feel this way about themselves. And so I began talking more to the students and talking to clients more and asking more questions. And that's where I learned this combination of abstinence only education in public schools, which is actually religious education on top of those kids that had been in youth groups and stuff during all of this time, whether they were in a religious home or not, but they were involved in youth groups and all of that kind of stuff. And I started putting it together. And so in 2006, because I started speaking about it, um, I was asked to write an article for a journal called The Other Journal, an intersection of theology and culture on what I was seeing. And I titled the article, Christians Caught Between the Sheets, How an Abstinence-Only Ideology Hurts Us. And that article went viral. Like I literally heard from people in other parts of the world you know, and I thought, oh, I have hit a nerve. Apparently I'm saying what hasn't yet been said. So I just started at that moment, keeping research notes. And I said, I'm going to write a book on this. I don't know how long it'll take. It took 11 years. It took a long time. You know, my first draft was, I sent it to a friend of mine who's written both in academia and out. And he says, Tina, who are you writing this for? And I'm like, I'd really like the general public and therapists to read this book. You know, like people who experienced, he said, this is an academic book. And I'm like, great. That's not what I'm intending to do, you know, but I was taking on such a huge topic because I wanted people to see how did we get here? How did America get here? And, and what role had consumerism played in this? Because it clearly had played a role. And then I wanted to ask the question, had it, always been this way or had there ever been any sex positivity in Christianity which the answer was no so then I asked on the Abrahamic line had there ever been any and I found some incredible stories that I thought oh my gosh these needed to come forward and they didn't you know and then I through all that time I was working with people and developing a model for how to heal and you know put that in the book and then put in practices that you can begin to start doing if you want to to kind of integrate whatever the existential mysterious parts of you, right? With the sexual, very physical parts of you and how to mix those two, if you want to play around in that arena. Um, that's how I ended up, yeah, writing, writing the book. But I think that for so many people, like people in your audience that feel that, uh, it's important to understand that they were likely getting that message that they were bad from pre-verbal forward, mm. right? They likely found their genitals before they were a year old or somewhere between a year and a, and two, right? This is just what we see with kiddos, right? And they don't know yet to not do it. So they're gonna keep getting in trouble because they're watching TV and they put a stuffed animal in their lap and then they reach down in their pants or whatever. I mean, they just, that's like, it's like a, the comfort corner of their blanket, right? It's on their body. It's so exciting and wonderful. And of course, that's where they're going to go. Just like they want more ice cream and they want, you know, it's like, of course, of course, that's what you want, you know, but no one is there to give them that message. Someone is there to slap their hand away, yell at them, say, Ugh, God doesn't like that. That's gross. You know, things that scare them because they don't know what they're doing because they're just doing they're basically breathing. They're just doing what's normal and they keep getting in trouble. So the only meaning they can make is it's them. They are bad. 
And that's what shame is. It's that I am deeply unworthy of love and belonging because of who I am, which is the very opposite message. I think the universe wants us to have, you know, all of love wants us to have is to see that we are infinitely valuable and we are a part of this earth and beyond, you know, and all the mystery that goes in there and all the other, you know, all the belief systems, you know, around the world that are indigenous have this constant theme all the way through that you are loved and you are valued and you are worthy and you are a part of the whole, your breath is a part of the breath. The Hebrew people believe that the first breath a child makes at at birth is the breath of God entering their body and that it's the in spirit, inspiration, right? In spirit. And it courses through your body until it expires, expirit. It leaves your body. You know, it's like, this is life in you, life in you, creative force in you, erotic energy in you right? At the core of what erotic means is like the goodness of, of life and soul and body all in one, right? The beauty of that. That's what's coursing in you. So I, I, I think it's a trauma response when your body says no, because I don't want to get in trouble by that big person who's taking care of me and loves me. And if I don't, if they don't take care of me, I will die, right? It's that trauma response. And so it's, it's a work, it's therapeutic work, it's somatic work to heal this part of our body. And, and so we might have to like eat a really good meal, really, really slow and try to enjoy every bite. And then as our heart gets going, we stop, we ground ourselves, we breathe and we say, this is good. This is good. I'm going to take another bite. I mean, literally we're rewiring our brain. Yeah, it's hard work. I have never had anyone explain that that recent historical perspective. I mean, we can look at sort of, you know, the Victorian era, that sort of stuff. But that shift that happened, that yeah. was my generation. Yes, I'm was. 40. And having not been raised in a Christian household, and, and I'm not Christian, but I still got it. I got it. Isn't yeah. that wild? Yeah. Well, it's, I've had people come up to me. I'm in places I've been speaking all over the United States and I'll have people come up to me and they'll say, I didn't grow up in a religious home, but I got it. And I got it at school with the teaching that they were giving around sexuality, around abstinence only. And I'm like, where did you grow up? You know, and they'll tell me where they grew up. And I'm like, yeah. And we have places that are still teaching this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Even though we know. is medically inaccurate. We only have 18 states in the United States that require, have policy passed, that they require that the sex education they offer be medically accurate. 18 out of 50. Right. It's, I mean, what we are doing to set our children up to be exploited, to be abused, to be hurt by not giving them this information is reprehensible. It's reprehensible. I mean, kids deserve to be given every tool they need to say, okay, here's your home. We're trying to make your home safe and protected. Out there, eh, there's a lot of stuff going on and I need to equip you to manage it and to know when you need help and how to get help and who can provide that for you. Like, I need, I'm responsible to keep you safe. We keep 
sex and relationship, consent, body autonomy, we keep all that education away from kids Mm -hmm. and then tell them that they need to listen to authority because authority is telling them the truth. And it's, and it's often not right. It's saying, don't use condoms. They often don't work. They don't, they have holes in them. Just don't have sex. Not helpful. No, 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 no. And it's interesting, even, you know, I have teen daughters, so I've watched them go through that kind of education in school and I'm in Canada, so it may be a little different, but I still see that conversation around pleasure, around enjoyment, that you have a clitoris, that it has nerve endings, that that orgasms happen for women too. <laughs> Shocking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not just erections and wet dreams. Yeah. and. no. Um, you know, yeah. so while I see the consent conversation getting better, getting better, yeah, I don't see this other piece happening, right? Yeah, no, you know, there was a study that I read one time in Sweden, so Holland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, They're doing better, know, those, the, they have been doing this since you know the 40s, yeah, so. Uh, you know, it's completely different, but I read this one study that was in Sweden and they took a cohort of 13 year old girls and they were going to do a longitudinal study. And so they taught them about their anatomy, their vulva, their clitoris, all about it. And that pleasure was important and that learning their body was important and that they needed to do that. And then they followed that cohort through into their twenties, all of those Young women got involved with sex later, chose really good partners for themselves when they did, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really had a sense of ownership over their lives, not just their bodies, but their lives. Yeah. Right. Like I, I'm built to deserve some goodness in my life. And that's what they sought, you know, and I can remember that Oprah one time interviewed a, interviewed a sex therapist person who's pretty well known. And they showed a little bit of a video of this sex therapist working with this mom and 10 year old daughter who had asked her mom, I want to learn this stuff. And you seem uncomfortable. Take me to somebody who can talk about this. She was (laughs) lovely and precocious in all the best ways. And so they filmed it. And, and Oprah showed a piece of this film of the mom talking to the daughter, had a, a diagram, was explaining things. And then the sex therapist would just kind of pipe in every once in a while to give another little piece of info. She got such a negative response from her um, listener, you know, people that followed her and watched her show. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember this was a good 15 years ago, probably. And I was so sad by that. I'm like, people here are, are so ignorant about the protective nature of good quality, medically accurate, what in, what in the, the Northern European countries called life education because it includes all kinds of things about economies and mutuality and equity and you know how you do relationships so both people thrive or all people thrive right you know it's the it's life it's how we do life well and um and i thought we we continue to hurt our kids you know and and think that we're not and that's the shame of it really i think yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to talk about sex in a positive, open, relaxed way 
when you yourself have never had that opportunity exactly to do it and so you know yeah. i often get questions you know usually around you know the later weeks of my program okay great we know all this information awesome how do we talk to our kids about sex how do we do this yeah and and i don't know i'd love your feedback on this but uh yeah. because i i don't specialize in helping people talk to their kids about sex but i i really think it's a it's an individual process to begin with it's it's a little bit of um, healing and, and growth yourself so that when you do approach those conversations, when your kids are touching their bodies or, yeah. or wherever that it, that it, that it is a relaxed way. It is like, Oh, that that's a part of your body. Let me do a little bit of education. Let me, yeah. you know, like I have one too, like this, yeah. you know, we're all kind of in it together. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. That's actually how shameless parenting the book came about. I had so many people, reaching out to me, coming up to me, you know, when I was in different places saying, I loved your book. <laughs> I have kids. I don't want to do to my kids what was done to me, but I have no idea what to do. Can you help me? And so I had, I had already started a project that came out of my work with teachers and therapists and clergy and doctors, pediatricians and family practice docs that I thought I knew their life was so busy and that they didn't get enough education. So what if I developed for them handouts that really went along with who's sitting in front of them, right? And so I started birth to two, two to four, four to six, front back page, right? And then before I sent it on to an illustrator for people to then, people can go buy these and get the license and then run as many copies as they want to and make posters. I don't care what they do with them, but, um, before I sent it to the, an illustrator, I sent it around to some colleagues of mine. And I said, do you see any blind spots here? Did I miss anything that you would, you think ought to be in there? So I got some good feedback, but one of my colleagues said, Tina, this needs to be in a book for parents so that they can pull it off the shelf every year, you know? And I'm like, wow, okay. Didn't even think about that. Um, until I thought about the fact that actually a book would be better in answering the question that I kept getting from people than just these handouts for professionals, right? Because I was had had been on that train for a while. So, so um, <clears throat> shameless parenting has an introductory chapter, and then and really talks about how healing our shame is our step into being able to do it different. And so I was going to hold their hand and help them deal with their shame exactly as it came up. So you know, like birth to two, here's what you're going to, here's what kids are trying to accomplish behaviorally. Typically, here's what they're trying to accomplish emotionally. Typically here's the sensual curiosities that are likely to emerge and how they might emerge. Then there's a whole bunch of questions. Like, how do you imagine that's going to be for you? If you feel a yucky feeling inside of you, take a deep breath because there's nothing wrong with you. That's just an indicator that you didn't get what you needed and you have shame there. So what might it have been like if your parents had done what I'm suggesting here for you? How might that have been different for you? At the end of each chapter, it's birth to two, two to four, four to six, all the way up to 18. The end of each chapter is, here's the leading books right now for kids on these subjects. Here's the leading books for adults, parents or whatever in this subject or in this uh, age group. 
go through those. How does that feel to read this picture book or to hear it explained this way? How does that feel? Does that feel liberating? How is that different than what you got? So it's this process of both giving them what they need, hands on, like, you don't have to create this. I'm going to literally hand it to you and tell you what to do. Put the books out, you know, read them all yourself kind of a thing. And, and then invite you to heal that part your two-year-old part, and then your four-year-old, three and four-year-old part, and then five and six-year-old part. All you need to do is be at the age your kids are now and then go two years ahead so that you're always just two years ahead. You don't have to have it all figured out, just be two years ahead. But that was how I thought I can really help people feel like this is doable. And, And the thing that I say is you'll be changing the legacy in this one generation. Because when you grow up like me, where somebody was there just giving you the info or teasing or do I mean like lots of very good things, you know, then you don't have that weight in your body in that way. Hmm. You know, you'll have some from whatever culture was able to, you know, kind of stick on you, but that sticking, pulling that off is so much easier than this deep pre-verbal trauma that you got repeatedly as you were growing up like that, that takes some healing. And and I like the fact that the book is put together that way, which just feels like it was fortuitous. You know, I was putting the information together in a handout. So it made sense to keep it just like that. But I really think that it helps people slowly move themselves, reparent themselves. And that's the feedback that I've gotten from lots of people is I'm not a parent, but this book has been so helpful to me because it has shown me what I didn't get at every little stage. And now I know what I should have gotten. And it's, I see myself as good, you know, and I'm like, yay, like that's a whole nother wonderful piece of how this book is functioning in the world. It's like, it's 14 font. It's very like, do, 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 do. It's got 130 pictures in it. It's super, you, at the end of every chapter is a place for you to write down how you're feeling. And what your kids are doing right then, if you are with kids around, you know, like it's a memory book, really, to walk you all the way through raising up your kiddos, you know, and it's got stuff in there. Like I think the eight-year-old section, the six to eight-year-old section talks about internet safety and how to talk about internet safety. It talks about how to talk about pornography. You know, it has some of the current stuff and I plan to update the book every two years. So there's a new edition. It was released in 2021, but there was a new um, edition that came out this summer, Hmm. this past summer. And I hope to do that every two years because culture is shifting and changing and people need different things. So it's such a compassionate approach. I love that. Just so compassionate to ourselves that we really weren't given what we needed to. And I mean, who can fault our parents? Like, that's not the whole, that's not the point of it. The point is that they also were affected by culture and by lack of education and inaccurate education. So yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I'm going to get that. Everyone (laughs) go get the book. (laughs) Let's read it. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. Well, and then you can, you can run a workshop and run people through it, you know, and if you've got them in person, hand out handouts, or I mean, do whatever helps you too in your own work, you know. Yeah. Um, 
I, I just, we got a long way to go. <laughs> we got a long way to go, but you can change it in one generation. And then it's changed from there on out, mm-hmm. you know, um, or potentially is. And, and, and I'm all about that because you walk in the world differently when you realize that you're in a good body that's made for goodness, you know, made for justice. Yeah. Mm. So good. Where are we at? Okay. (laughs) So many other questions for you. You mentioned consumerism in your, when you were talking about the historical perspective, consumerism is in our culture. And you mentioned that in the book as well. And I really appreciated that perspective. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So before the development of the Christian church, before it became an empire religion in the fourth century with Constantine, the emperor chose everybody became a bunch of men who decided it was going to be based on denying the body, which had nothing to do with Christianity and way I understood it. Um, There was already in place in culture, the mind body split, right? The mind, the body was seen as beautiful in, in Greek and Roman culture was beautiful, especially male bodies. (laughs) And because it was patriarchy, um, but the mind was seen as eternal ideas were thought of as eternal. And so therefore they were more valuable than the body, which was temporal. So that had long been in place 300 years, at least before the formation of the Christian church, which then took 400 years to then become a patriarchal empire institution. Um, American consumerism, capitalism in America is based on the idea of the mind-body split. But we use it differently. It's still based in it. It's that they're not connected. We can use the body any way we want to sell anything we want. And we don't have to think about the effect on the mind, the effect on the spirit, the effect on relationship, the effect on anything. We just can use the body and it really doesn't matter. It's okay. And we can see this idea has been floating around a long time, right? Like, yeah, you can use, you can use somebody, you can use their body. You can use women. You can be violent towards women. You can do any, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, people need to be strong enough to handle it. You know, it doesn't really matter, but we actually run on our economy on the idea that we can make you feel badly enough about yourself, your body, what you look like, all the external things that you're going to keep spending money to try to show yourself you're good enough, even though that's a dead end. You're good enough. You've always been good enough. You were born more than good enough, right? But we have an economy that works very hard to convince you that you are not. We know from research that 50% of six-year-old girls are modifying their diets already. 90% or two-thirds, I'm sorry, two-thirds of nine-year-olds and 90% of 15-year-olds. So we have already got her thinking she's not good enough by the time she's six, if she's been watching enough media or just hearing it around, right? And so we're well on our way to get her to keep being a good spender, right? We give boys the message that girls are there for your pleasure, right? It's very heteronormative, right? 
They're there for you to use. They're there for, you are entitled to her and her body and for her to look a particular way for you, right? And so you will participate in helping her feel badly about herself and will help you feel like you better keep being all the things, you know, have enough money, have the shiny car, be strong enough, you know, whatever the thing is, be commanding enough and violent enough, whatever, all the things so that you also drive our economy forward, right? And this is capitalism at its core, at its core. And it's never going to change. I mean, I don't like to use absolutes like always and never, but not in my lifetime for darn sure, you know, and I don't know what would change it. I mean, we keep being hell bent on doing things that we know are hurtful to the general public simply because it makes the stockholders more money at the end of this quarter right? The ends, making money, justify the means, anything we want to do. We can do whatever in the F we want to do if it's going to make our stockholders money. And that's the ethic in the United States. And it's an ethic that the vast, you know, it's not a majority, it's not a majority of people, but the people who hold the wealth of the United States, that top half percent, they run everything. They run our politics, they run our corporations, and they continue to pass laws to benefit them and their families and to sink the rest of us. And I know that sounds really harsh, but if you're informed and you're looking at the patterns that are happening around and happening in different states and stuff here, and I'm not, I can't speak for Canada, but you can see this happening right in front of your eyes. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you don't, you don't care about the people who are hurting. In fact, I don't think you even have a pulse on what their lives are like. And you don't care to. You want to take an oath to be in office that you're going to protect the American people and you will show us day after day after day how you do not. You know, and and it's because capitalism rules. It's more important than people. Products are more important than people in the United States. Dr. And the church Tina. plays a role Dr. in Dr. Tina. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, this is good stuff. This is good stuff because when we know the truth, when we can see it, mm-hmm. then we can do something about it. But if we're just swimming in this ick and discomfort and confusion, right. then there's, there's no, right. There's no exactly. truth. It, and, exactly. and, and it does, like you said, it, it, it always is directed back to us because that's what culture does as well. It's an individual problem. Right. It's an exactly. eating disorder. It's an individual issue. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, we or low talk- libido. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. As opposed to you have body wisdom that is saying you don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's look at that. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe your body's got some wisdom here to say nothing is wrong with you. Everything is right with you. Let's listen to what your knowledge is, what your body knowledge is. It's not wanting to do something. And that probably is in contrast to what you might want to do. You know, Esther Perel, who's one of my favorite colleagues, she has a question that she often will ask people in therapy. She'll say, what kind, describe for me, what kind of sex is actually worth having for you? And a lot of people are like, none, right? (laughs) Like, I can't think of any. And I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go beyond your experience. Let's go way out in your imagination. 
Yeah, beyond the media sex care, formula, beyond all the, the, beyond and the labels and the yeah, acceptable Yeah, let's just acts. think of pleasure and your body. Yeah. And if you want to throw a connection in there, you're welcome to, but you don't have to start there, right? If it's taking a bath and having a glass of champagne, yes, okay. Sex I want to do right there. Boom, yeah. write it down. You know what I mean? Like, let's go for pleasure, honoring you, listening to you, what sounds fun to you. And let's grow that list. That's the list that you deserve to have. Yeah. Right. It's not, you know, yeah, it's, it's not penetration mm-hmm. for lots of people. I'll often put the foot on the, or the orgasm, you know, even orgasm, you know, there's, there's so much hype around let's close the orgasm gap. We got to close the orgasm gap. That's equality. I'm like, no, it's not. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Pleasure. It's Your pleasure. pleasure is, is all it's all, and it's not going to be the same. And that's one of the things I love about women. You know, they say from what they know so far and part of this research is actually really new, um, that there's about 5,000 nerve endings at the head of the penis. Now the head of the penis correlates to that tip of what's outside your body of the clitoris. The clitoris is like at least seven centimeters longer going inside your body. It fills with blood in the same way that the penis does all that kind of thing. Um, but they're saying that the clitoris has as many as 11,000 nerve endings. It's the only organ on the female body that has one on any body that has one purpose. I mean, it's clearly there. And I just think women are extra blessed because we deserve to be, because we have had to live under patriarchy for so long, which is so misunderstands the power and uh, brilliance of women and collective women, connect collective, female processes, right? We've been caring for the earth and for people our whole existence. Yeah. So I think um, it's really useful to think about, wow, if I got to decide what is playful, fun, feels good, maybe connecting, even who would I want to connect? I mean, I just, if I gave myself real freedom, to think about this, what might I come up with, you know, and, um, and just give her time, you know, like prompts to work with. And it's like, girlfriend, you know, it's in there. You've just been, you've been taught that you can't look at it, that you can't give yourself permission to feel it, that you're not important. And what you think and feel is not important. And that simply has been a lie your whole life. You are so important. You are the diva that has cared for this earth and world and people. We could not have survived without you. We can survive with just a little bit of sperm. Honestly, I mean, there's a really great book called um, Women After All, written by a medical anthropologist named um, Melvin Connor. It's filled with research, but it reads like a novel. It's one of my favorite books. I've read it twice in the same year. It's so good. But if you want to see the arc of what really is going on and why the feminine is so important, read this book. It's just, it's all there in history. It's all there in, in just looking at species and how species have evolved. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a super, super good book. Yeah. Hmm. 
I don't even know if I got to what you were talking about, but so good, so good. You know, and, and even notwithstanding that scientific proven fact about the clitters, I mean, you, it's undeniable. It's it's undeniable. Yeah. Most women, uh, a lo- not most, a lot of women that I survey anonymously, their their biggest question is, how can I have an orgasm with just penetrative sex? Yeah, you weren't meant to. <laughs> Come on. Are men having orgasms rubbing their testicles? Like, it's just not happening. Exactly. Not be ridiculous yeah. about this. It is. Yeah. But that's it culture. Absolutely. That's culture through and through. That's every single sex scene that is porn. That, yeah, it's so, you know, let's maybe let's close with this. Um, we're in a really, we're in, I think we're in a really dark time. Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't look dark. It looks kind of bright and shiny. It, lo- it looks maybe like on the facade, but just dig a little deeper and women are being really harmed. Yeah. Really yeah. harmed. Yeah. So in that climate that we're in as women, um, and I don't, I don't think it's, this is not a simple suggestion, yeah, but sure, maybe sure. just a few ideas uh, f- from your perspective. How do we then turn in into ourselves and into our relationships and create a safe bubble around ourselves, create a, a place that, where sex is not hijacked from culture, but it is, it is two people, it is exploring pleasure and connection, what have you found in your own with your clients with with the people you teach like how do we do that how do we live in such you know with the two things being true at the same time the the darkness out there and the light that we could cultivate inside yeah yeah that's such an important question i think um i think that the, the short answer is we do it in community we're not, we don't do it alone. We have to find our people who understand are on the same journey as we are, who we feel safe to be honest with and vulnerable with, and who together we can unite, put together an action plan and carry that action plan forward. Yeah. You know, like, and, and so for some people, I'm like, get a copy of Sex, God in the Conservative Church and your best girlfriends and start a talking about each chapter. And then from there, figure out what you want to learn next and what you want to learn next. And then as a group, decide, how do you want to implement that? What do you want it to look like in your own life? And what do you want it to look like in your community? We can affect change. It's not easy. And it might seem small, but it's when the collective does it in their own ways, globally, we begin to create shifts. And that's part of what Melvin points out in his book is like, we've got massive shifts happening around the earth right now in such a way that patriarchy, the arc of patriarchy is starting to come to an end, you know, and some of those changes we're not seeing in the United States, but they're happening in other countries in significant ways. We're not going to be, the United States is not going to be the leader of this change. Maybe in North America, we won't be either. I don't know. But the change is happening. And we in our area, in our community, we can make a difference. 
But first and foremost, we need to not feel alone. And we need somebody to hug us and sit with us on those days we feel really discouraged. Yeah. And, um, and then together we carry each other forward. And women have always done this. They carry each other forward. They carry each other's children forward. They do it in community. They do it as a village of people. And from there, we make a difference. So I just say, find your people, find your people. Um, yeah. I was listening to a lecture this morning on, um, on climate grief. And there are organizations now popping up globally where people are gathering around, you know, the climate issues and talking together about how do we support each other in our fear and in our grief, but also how do we mobilize towards change? This is how humans have done it. We, we get scared about something and then we find other people who will be with us and help us. And then together we move forward. So I, th I think we just find our people. That's where we start. We find our people, find our tribe of people. Beautiful way to end. Dr. Tina, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for writing two books. I'm writing my own right now. And I know <laughs> the labor of love that is. <laughs> thank you so much. I, I, I want to direct, where, where can people find you? Where is the, where is the best place to go? Yeah. So, um, I'm on Instagram at doctor. So Dr. Dr. Tina shameless. Um, my website is tinashermersellers.com. If you are a therapist or clergy or physician or educator, and you want to learn more about what is sexual health, what is sexuality, how do people move in, around it, around sexuality and what are my biases and how are those impacting my work? Then you can go to nwioi.com. That's the Northwest Institute on Intimacy. Our Instagram is NW Institute on Intimacy, um, which where we put up, you know, what's going on with us. And I'll tell you that what's coming down the line from me is because I'm interested in healing uh, religious sexual trauma and, and other forms of complex post-traumatic stress trauma. Um, I've been studying psychedelics because that's our next frontier as far as being able to really help people. And, um, and so I've got an organization that'll be launching in January called Inanna Rising, I-N-A-N-N-A-R-I-S-I-N-G.org. And there I'm going to put together prescribers and therapists, um, people who are have learned a little bit about psychedelics and want to be in that frontier as we move forward, but to do it safely in socially responsible ways and ways that we honor the indigenous organizations around us and where we develop a scholarship fund for people who are underserved to get this care as well. I really think that that there's a potential in that to really move us forward and healing ourselves and healing our communities, healing our countries. Um, and, and starting to really make a difference in, in the hurtful ways, you know, starting to diminish the hurtful ways that are operating in our world. Yeah. So, um, and by liberating people to live their best life. Right. And so then they can follow their passion, whatever that is. And we'll all be better if people are following their passion. So, um, so that's, that's really where also where I'm going as far as this, this healing, um, that I'm grateful we have a, such a large community of people that are a part of. So thank you for you and your work as well. And all you do to come us alongside people who are 
hurting from this stuff. Yeah. All right. Thank you again. Thank you all for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next one. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed this episode, I have a favor to ask of you. It's really hard to get the word out about a podcast about sex. What would really, really help is if you would leave a rating and a review. And I know that you get asked this all the time in different podcasts, but please, I beg you, it would really, really help so that more women who need this message will hear it. All you have to do is go into your Apple podcast app. It's the purple icon. And if you go to the podcast page where it shows my face, and has a little button that says latest episodes. If you scroll down past the episodes and you get to a section called ratings and reviews, there's a little purple writing thing that says write a review. If you click on that, it will ask you to give it a five stars. Actually, you can put any stars, but five is what I would love. And put a title and then write your review. Thank you so much for supporting this little venture here and I really am so grateful. If you are curious about wanting it more and how this program could help you want and enjoy sex more with your husband and you feel like it may be a great next step for you, you can go to janetdentonhouse.com slash wanting it more to sign up for the wait list, to learn more, to see when we're running our next round. All right, that's it. I'll see you next one.